0: If you will open up your Bibles to Isaiah, Isaiah. We are continuing this series in Isaiah. Uh, This Advent series, Advent, just means the arrival of something important, okay? And Jesus is the most important person that's ever arrived. So we look back at Christmas, we call that Advent, we call this time of year Advent, we look forward to the next Advent of Christ when he returns. And we've been doing that by studying Isaiah. We've been looking at a different theme each week, hope, love, joy, and peace, and looking at the promises, the prophecies of Isaiah that happened 700 years before Christ came. This week, we're talking about joy. It's bowtie week, joy, okay? We're talking about joy, and so as we celebrate that Christmas will come, today we're celebrating that joy will come. Joy will come, And we're excited this year. My wife and I are experiencing joy as we get ready for our grown children to come back to their home. Uh, We've got kids that live in Oklahoma City, Memphis, Tennessee, and Huntsville, Alabama. It's convenient. They're all at the same latitude, but they're pretty spread out, right? And so over 2023, we've gotten to see Oklahoma and Memphis together a little bit. We've gotten to see Memphis and Huntsville together, and we've gotten to see Huntsville and Oklahoma together, but we haven't gotten to see all of them in the same place at all in 2023. So we're really, really excited for the joy that we'll have when we have them all together under our little roof, right? That's going to be really exciting. And yet we're experiencing joy now, even as we just look forward to the joy that's coming in a few weeks, Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, That's what the spiritual life is like. We experience real joy now as we get ready for the greater joy that's coming and as we just realize all the goodness of God's grace to us in the present moment as well. Joy is both anticipatory, right? You look forward to its future fulfillment and it's a present reality. I mean, sometimes beautiful sunsets just happen to you, right? Right? and you just feel joy. Other times, you have the worst day you've ever had, and joy is a discipline. Other days, you're like, this has been a terrible week, but you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna go to church on Sunday, and I'm gonna sing songs about how happy I am in Jesus, even though I'm gonna be crying half the time, but I'm gonna make that a discipline, that I know God is bringing ultimate joy in the future. And so joy is both a spontaneous thing we experience, and it's a discipline whereby we're looking forward to the future when joy will come fully. Amen? We'll see this fleshed out in Isaiah chapter 25. Uh, if you're just grabbing a Bible, you just crack it open in the middle. Isaiah is just about dead square in the middle. Isaiah chapter 25 should be around page 586 in the Black Bibles, if I check that properly. It's somewhere in the 500s. It's Isaiah chapter 25. I want to start by reading just the middle section. We'll study the whole text today, the whole chapter, but I want to start with verses 6 through 9. Joy will come. Joy will come. It says on verse 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The joy of the Lord is experienced now by faith. As we look back on on what he's done already through the birth, perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet we look forward to the consummation of all these things, full joy, where he wipes every tear from our eyes, amen? We believe that this book speaks of the joy and wonder of God through Jesus Christ. Uh, Every word of it is relevant. Uh, Every word of it has his authority and his power, but we also believe that we need his Holy Spirit to hear it, to absorb it, and to believe it. So we're gonna pray that his spirit would meet with us this morning. God, we pray that your spirit would change us so that we would be those who love and delight in your word, that you would continue to transform our hearts, that we would be those that believe in what you say, but also that you would transform our hearts so that we would be those who rejoice in what you say and who you are. We pray that you would do this because you're kind, you're gracious, you've proven that to us in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. So Isaiah 25, the big idea is that joy will come. Joy will come. And as we unpack in order the whole, the whole chapter, uh, Isaiah 25, 1 through 12, we're going to see three big ideas. Uh, number one, joy is God-powered. Joy is God-powered. He's the one the strength comes from. Uh, number two, we're going to see that joy is wildly inclusive. It's wildly inclusive. It's for all peoples. And then number three, joy is cosmic war. Joy is... Cosmic war. We don't always put joy with war, but hopefully the warriors here can appreciate that. Joy is cosmic war. So, joy will come. Big idea. Number one, joy is God powered. We see this in verses one through five. We just have to recognize that we live in a world that's a little mixed up about power and strength. Um, Our world is either grotesquely celebrating strength or naively condemning strength. We're kind of pulled in two different directions, right? A strength makes the most sense when it's in the hand of a perfectly just and gracious God. And so here we see Isaiah just gushing over the strength of God, saying your strength is incredible, God, and you're my hope because these other strong people that have abused their strength, you're gonna stop them. And that's, that's our hope. We hope in the strength of this God. Real joy is God-powered. We see this rescuing strength verses one through five, it says, O Lord, you are my God. O Lord, whenever you see all capital letters L-O-R-D in the Old Testament, that's his very personal name, the covenant name he revealed to Moses in the burning bush. It's pronounced often Yahweh or Jehovah. Um, And so this is this very personal name that translates to something like I am or I will be there for you. It's this idea that God is present, close to us, with us, and for us. And you, personal covenant Lord, Yahweh, you, you are my God. There are a lot of other powers in the world. You're the one that I'm trusting in. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. Now, just to be clear, he's not just celebrating that God goes around blowing up cities, right? He's talking about the city that's in rebellion against God. He's talking about in context, right? They've been exiled. They've been defeated by evil empires. He's saying, you're the one that defeats these evil empires. You've made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. He's saying, all these strong men, all these warlords all these great powers in the world that we get upset about, we see this evil that's taking place, and no one seems to be able to stop this powerful evil in the world. Isaiah is saying, God's word is saying, no, they will be stopped. They will come to an end. And in the end, they will fear the true God. Verse 4, "'He has been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress.'" saying, those of us that are mad and sad and beat up and abused, we can trust that we can run to God as a stronghold. And he's going to give a bunch of weather imagery here um, to help us kind of with colorful language. Imagine what it's like when God stops the evil in the world, right? Because there are things that we experience and it just is overwhelming. We experience storms, we experience heat, and we're just like, oh, this is miserable. And then all of a sudden the next moment it's over. And that's what he's going to describe here in chapter 25, verses 4 and 5. So he talks about being a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. Do you see that? You ever been caught in a storm and you wish you weren't getting soaked, right? Or hit with hail. And then you go inside and it's all over and everything's better. Or you're out on a summer day here in Texas, it's 172 degrees, And then a cloud blows over and there's shade. It's like, where did that come from? There wasn't a cloud in the sky and all of a sudden there's shade and the temperature drops and you're like, okay, I can survive. I'm gonna be okay. It's that kind of sudden turn. You're being overwhelmed by a storm, you're being overwhelmed by the heat and then all of a sudden it's gone. He goes on in verse five, like heat in a dry place. You know how heat just blows away in dry places? It's a little stickier here. The heat lingers at night in central Texas. Go out to West Texas, you go to New Mexico, you go to Colorado, be really hot in the day, and then the dryness, it just evaporates, right? Gets really cold at night. I'm sure you all have experienced that. He goes on and says, you subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. I skipped a verse there at the end of verse four. The breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall. The breath of the ruthless, okay? You've got these evil men, that are talking trash to you and to me, and we see them winning and we see them succeeding and we think, who's going to stop this evil? And he says, the breath of the ruthless is like the storm against a wall, right? You ever gotten out of your car and it's raining really hard? Those of you, raise your hands if you're like from the Pacific Northwest or a place where it doesn't rain as hard. Anybody? Okay. Can you remember what rain used to be like? And it's just misty and light If you're in central Texas and it rains, it rains really hard, right? Like It just overflows the gutters. It comes down really hard, typically when it rains. Sometimes we have soft rain, but usually it's like heavy, heavy rain. So you drive up to the store and you're thinking, I can just make it 10 feet into the store and I'll be fine, right? And you walk and you just get like washed away before you've even made it to the door. But once you get inside, it's all over with. I, I grabbed a picture here of just water on the glass, right? This is just an image that he's trying to portray here Again, the end of verse uh, four, he says, the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, right? The storm is real scary when you're out in it, but the wall just stops it immediately. And that's the idea. This thing that we experience that is all-encompassing, we're getting soaked, we're scared, we're afraid we're going to get washed away. You step inside the wall, it's done. It's over. It's ended. It's that simple. He's saying, that's what it's like to trust in our God, he is going to end injustice, ruthless men. He's going to defeat them once and for all. That hasn't happened yet. We're not there yet. We're still looking forward to that day. But joy is God-powered. And we, especially on this side of Jesus' first advent, can say this with even greater confidence. So the Israelites, before Jesus came, they would look back on his rescue in the Exodus and again and again in the Old Testament, they were like, we've seen you rescue our people in the Exodus, so we know you can rescue us again. And we get to do the same thing. We look back on the rescue of Jesus. We saw that you lived that perfect life we couldn't live. We saw that you, lived, uh, that you died a sacrificial death in our place, taking all of our sins upon yourself on the cross. We talked about that with Isaiah 53 last week. We see that you really did this, and then we see that you rose from the grave, your victorious resurrection. We can look back and see Your power, God, your power of salvation as it discussed in verse one. So we exalt him, we praise him and we trust that he's gonna finish what he started. That's where we live. That's what Romans eight describes, this longing and aching for God to finish what he started. Joy is God powered. How do we live this out? How do we live out the reality of joy? Well, there's a lot of stuff here about God stopping bullies, right? God stopping evil men, so some of you who may be enduring something terrible right now, just knowing, having that confidence that God is going to end the evil that you're living through right now should, should give you a sense of joy, a little taste of joy. Will it be greater joy when it's all over with? For sure. But just knowing that the people with evil power over you and over me right now will be stopped, that should give us joy. But also, I think what that does is that gives us the bravery to speak up. Sometimes we're in these situations where we're like, well, these evil men, they're just going to do evil things, and we get numb to it, right? Don't be numb to it. Like, if you're being abused, if you're being mistreated, you speak up, you, you speak to the authorities involved, you report these people, because you know you have a, a mighty warrior on your side, you have a God who is the ultimate sovereign power of the universe, and he's going to end injustice once and for all. And that should give you enough uh, bravery to say, this, this isn't right. This isn't the way the universe is gonna continue forever. To speak up, to stop, to not just give in to abuse. Ask for help. Resist evil. God someday is gonna stop all abuse forever. The second thing that I think we can do to live out this reality that joy is God-powered is, is just simply praising God, right? Um, we talked about the discipline of coming to church, just showing up to the gathering, saying I've had a good week or I've had a bad week, I'm just gonna praise God. I'm gonna exalt his name, right? That's what he's describing in verse one. He says, oh Lord, you're my God. I will exalt you. I'll praise your name for you've done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. That's a summary of what we do every week when we gather to worship. We're praising God and what he's accomplished through his son, Jesus Christ. So we invite you into that. We actually have uh, a, little, a little secret club you could join where we'll send out the songs ahead of time if you wanna practice, Right? Um, It's called Worship United. We have little clipboards on the stage here. You can sign up and get an email list of these are the songs of the week. Uh, Sometimes Chris Webster and I might send out just uh, encouragements about how to worship and how to get our heart right before the Lord. We're inviting you actually to help us worship well because we're just like you. Some weeks we don't feel like it, but it's a discipline of rejoicing in God because he's the source of all power. So we're inviting you to look at the songs, to get ready to sing, because you're the choir, right? It's not just like a worship team up here and then everybody else. Like, you are the choir of our church, and we need you for this to be good, and we exalt and praise His name. So if you sign up, you'll get the songs, you'll be able to prep a little bit, but also just invite you to pray. Prepare your hearts before you come on Sundays as we gather to exalt and rejoice in the Lord. And then finally, this is the last point on joy is God-powered, and then we'll move on rejoice as a child of God, right? Um, You're a child of God. Joy is God-powered, and so our joy is really centered in his strength and what he says is true. And so we don't often make this connection, but obeying him is actually a way of rejoicing in him, saying, you're the sovereign Lord and King, so I'm going to do what you say. That's actually a way of rejoicing in God. And I'd, I'd We'll be honest with you. Try to, I try to always be honest with you, right? Um, it's an acquired taste, right? Obeying this book, doing what God says is an acquired taste. It doesn't always seem joyful the first time you try it. So there are two things that work intention, work together if you're a follower of Jesus. One is more and more you're believing Jesus is really worth it. More and more your heart and your mind is being converted to see him as worth it he's good. So if he's asked me to do something that my culture says is crazy, but, but he says is good, then I trust him, right? Then maybe moral purity is actually good and a joy to be uh, embraced, even though my culture says that's crazy. And so as we begin to obey Jesus, that's a way of expressing a joy. So we begin believing it more and more, he, he's worth it, and then trying it, just trying what he says, just doing what Jesus says. We, we stumble along in obedience. And it's a form of joy. The more we actually do what he says is good, the more we begin to acquire that taste of rejoicing in the Lord. A couple of particulars that you could do to pull this off uh, is reading Ephesians and Proverbs, uh, a New Testament book and an Old Testament book. Just, Just read those books and do what they say, right? Proverbs is just practical wisdom, 31 chapters. You could read one for each uh, day of the month, 31 chapters. Uh, Ephesians is really helpful because it connects it back to Jesus really beautifully. The way Ephesians is laid out is you've got three chapters that say, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you. And then you've got three chapters that are like, straighten up, straighten up, straighten up, okay? And so you can begin to put that together like, oh, Jesus really does love me. Oh, I, I, well, then I should do what he says, right? And we begin to express the joy of obedience. Okay, second point, joy is wildly inclusive. Joy is wildly inclusive. We'll see this in verses six through eight. I know inclusive is is kind of a trendy word, but the Bible really is inclusive in a lot of ways, right? Uh, And so here there are three poetic devices we're gonna see in this section in verses six through eight. Uh, The first device we're gonna see is a repetition of feasting imagery, right? So God's including us in the greatest feast, the greatest party that the world has ever seen. That's pretty inclusive. That's pretty cool to get invited to that party. And then the second image that gets repeated over and over again is death, or specifically in the text, the shroud of death, right? That's like the sheet that gets pulled over the dead body. Death and the experience of death is going to be swallowed up, evaporated forever. That's pretty inclusive. Like that's all of our biggest problem, right? Like, we can worry about money and relationships and all these other things, but death is our biggest problem. And God is saying it's going to be swallowed up forever. So, this joy is wildly inclusive. And then finally, uh, we see a repetition five times. Uh, I read this in in all the commentaries, all the scholars are pointing this out. Uh, Five times in this little section, you've got all, 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 all. It's repeated. It's for all people, it's for all nations, it's for all faces, it's for all kinds of people. I was talking over the text with my intern this week and he noticed it as well. I was like, hey, you agree with all the Hebrew scholars, right? He's like, yeah, just just keep saying all, all, all. So notice this, see these repetitions when I read it, verses six through eight. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, all peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined, Now, you might not be a lover of marrow or great meats. Maybe you're not even a lover of great wines. Insert your favorite food here, okay? He's saying it's going to be the best. Remember that that best meal you ever had, that special night, that special occasion, that special holiday? It's going to be like that, but it's going to be better. The best party ever, the greatest feast that's ever been seen. God's inviting you in to that kind of feast. It's wildly inclusive. Verse seven, and he will swallow up on this mountain, the covering that is cast over all peoples. So that death covering, that death shroud, that sheet that's been pulled over the dead body, that problem that all peoples have, it's gonna be swallowed up. He goes on and he says, the veil that is spread over all the nations, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. This is huge. This is for everybody. This is wildly inclusive. Now to clarify, the all peoples, all peoples, all nations, all faces, all the earth repetition doesn't mean that in the end, every single human being will be with God. The scripture's clear that there are some that say, I I don't want to be near you. And God says, okay. I think C.S. Lewis in his writings explains this better than most Christian apologists. It's a hard thing to comprehend, but God allows you to be outside his perfect, joyful, life-giving presence in eternity. And the scripture communicates that as the most horrible choice you could ever make, but that God allows that. And so what these all things are teaching us, and when you, again, do systematic theology, just kind of like read all the verses that talk about this kind of thing, what it's saying is that every kind of person is saved. What it means is God is no respecter of uh, your race, right? He's not like checking the door going like, oh, okay, these tribes get in, these races are not allowed, but these races are good, I like them, right? No, no matter where you come from, no matter what people have said about you, no matter what kind of shame you carry or pride you carry, we're saved by the power of God through Jesus Christ, inclusive of everybody. Anybody can come. Anybody that says, save me, God, save me, he will. All you have to do is just reach out and ask him to save you. And he will do it. Isn't that beautiful? It's, it's wildly inclusive. There's not an IQ test. There's not like a 40-yard dash you have to run, get your time in the, you know, the right category. No, he just... He says, "If you want it, you got it. I will save you. The only way to get saved is through the power of God, and He's wildly inclusive, broadly inviting. So, so what would she do? We should do about this. Um, I mean, I think a practical application of this is we should have parties, right?" We should have parties. He's got this feasting imagery. We should have parties. We should invite friends into our parties. I, I grabbed a picture online of some models having a, a Christmas feast. Um, your table may not be that beautiful. Your outfits may not be that nice. We find the stock photography online all the time of the perfect pot, uh, party. You might see it on Instagram. You know, like, oh, that's what I want my party to look like. Just have a party, even if it's ugly, even if it doesn't look good in the pictures. Just, just have a party, have a feast. That's something that Christians have always done. We celebrate, we feast, we celebrate in the name of Jesus. Jesus got in trouble with the religious people of his day because he was always going to parties, right? We should be those kinds of people that celebrate. We rejoice, and, and it's wildly inclusive, and, and others are invited. That's what Christians should be like. One of the most repeated terms in the New Testament about, about Christians is the word hospitality. Hospitality literally means kindness or love for outsiders, Right? So we should be the kind of people that love strangers and outsiders, and we're always inviting, and we're always making friends with people and inviting people in. We're wildly inclusive in that sense, reflecting the character of Jesus. Now we do have to be careful because scripture is careful when it comes to food and wine and partying and indulgence, right? There's a kind of indulgence of, I'm going to indulge in this good food and this good treat to the glory of God. But there's also a kind of indulgence where we make indulgence into our God. And we have, to be, we have to be very guarded about that. Scripture's very serious about guarding against drunkenness and gluttony. And we don't want to throw all those things out the window, right? When we say party, we don't mean party without any caveats, right? We mean party in a righteous way where we enjoy his good gifts, but not in a way that overdoes it or leads people into sin. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Don't allow the partying to become an idol, a false god in and of itself. Don't allow pleasure and indulgence to become your god. No, we we enjoy the gifts that God gives us in celebration of God as the giver of all good gifts. At this time of year, it's important to reflect on the reality that Puritans, reformers, those that broke away in the Protestant Bible teaching tradition, from the medieval church, often uh, looked down on the celebrations of feasts and Christmas and things like that. So we've got to understand that and put that in historical perspective. Because we're, you know, years later, we're the kind of people that are like, yeah, let's have a party. Let's enjoy it. It's great. But we need to understand why the Puritans and Reformers were so suspicious of it. It wasn't because they hated parties. The Puritans get a bad rap sometimes. Everybody thinks, you know, they're mean pilgrims, you know, wearing their black hats and everything. They actually enjoyed parties. They enjoyed mirth and gladness and celebrations. What happened was the medieval church had required so many feasts and holidays that it was like a burden on the backs of the poor people. They were like, do the celebration, do that celebration. You can't work on this day and you can't eat that food on this day and you gotta eat this way and you gotta do this and you gotta do this celebration this this perfect way and if you don't do all these things, you're going to hell. And that's basically how they did parties. It, It got way out of control. And so the Puritans and the Reformers were like, just forget that. We're just going to live a normal life. We'll come celebrate Jesus on Sundays. We're just going to keep it simple, right? And so you see the Puritans and Reformers reacting to some of the extremes in the medieval church where it was required. It was a legalistic requirement of all these holidays and feasts. So I'm trying to kind of put it in perspective for you. The Christians throughout history have swung on this pendulum, Right? We should be those that party and celebrate and enjoy Jesus, but we need to make sure we don't make a new law out of it. Like, you've got to party in this way, and you have to have this kind of greenery, or you're going to hell, right? You've got to give each other grace. Uh, this is the way it's described in Colossians. Colossians 2 says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are all shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So early Christians were were trying to figure this out just like we are, right? They had people from Jewish backgrounds, people from pagan backgrounds. They're like, just just be nice to each other, right? Don't do anything sinful and don't judge each other about your parties, all right? Those Those are kind of the two boundaries there. Enjoy your partying. You can bring your heritage into it as long as it's to the glory of God and you're not breaking commandments, amen? Okay, party instructions. So again, two applications, have parties, have fun in the name of Jesus and invite others into it. Plain old hospitality, have lunch together, have parties, invite friends to church. This is the time of year when uh, people are more willing to visit churches, invite friends to church. And remember, we're doing all these things. We're enjoying the parties that we plan and we're enjoying the parties that just happen to us, right? Beautiful sunset comes out of nowhere. We're enjoying all these things to the glory of God of God, that remembering they're just a taste, a foretaste of heaven, where Jesus will wipe away every tear and death will be swallowed up forever. Okay, this brings us to the third point. Joy is a cosmic war. Joy is a cosmic war. We see this in Isaiah 25 verses 9 through 12. So he's going to finish it. He's going to swallow up death forever. And in verse 9, it tells us this, It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place. So let me explain this imagery of verse 10. The hand of the Lord is going to rest on this mountain, the party of the Lord mountain. Prophetically, this is Zion, Jerusalem. The idea is Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead on that mountain. And so that's the mountain of our hope. It's the home of God's people, right? So speaking metaphorically, like God's got his hand of power on his place, and then he's got his foot on Moab. Now, that's kind of confusing, right? Because I just told you, that God's no respecter of persons. He doesn't engage in the sin of partiality. He loves all peoples. So so why is he rejecting Moab? We have to clarify, and we've said this a couple of times as we've looked at the scriptures, that the Bible uses tribal language. And so when it's describing Moab, it's not saying that anyone with this genetic type is going to hell. It's, It's using Moab as representative of, there was this tribe that hated God, did horrible things, And they built their whole tribal identity around that. And God's saying, that's that's gonna be judged. So that's how we have to understand this tribal language. We'll say, yeah, Moab, the people that hate me, they'll be judged. Or Edom, the people that hated me, they'll be judged. But always throughout scripture, there were surprising conversions of people who had grown up in a tribe of God-haters, and they came awake to God's grace. And they repented and turned and trusted in him and he saved them. That happens again and again. Throughout Scripture, so don't uh, hear this the wrong way. So Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dung hill. How is straw trampled in a dung hill? Do y'all know what a dung hill? A manure pile, a pile of poop. Okay, just like you're gonna push the straw down into the pile of poop. That's how Moab is going to be defeated. It gets even worse. Brace yourselves. Verse eleven. And he, who's he? The enemy of God. The one that says, I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. The one that says, I can cross the channel of of death and chaos on my own. The one that says, I can climb out of this hole that I've put myself in. That one. How's that one described? Verse 11. He will spread out his hands in the midst of it. In the midst of what? The manure pile we were just talking about. He's going to be swimming in the manure piles. A swimmer spreads his hands out to swim, but the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. The Lord's going to lay our pompous pride low. And our pride of, I can do this. Look at how skilled, look at my skilled hands. And he's like, you're swimming through manure. Now, just to be clear, I know this is gross. I'm sorry. Blame Isaiah. This was his metaphor, okay? Okay. If, if you've ever worked around animals, um, I, I grew up in Texas. We'll have these cow patties that like bake in the sun for weeks, right? And they're basically like um, germ-free Frisbees after a while. They just bake and bake and bake. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the other extreme that you might have seen in a place where animals are kept, where it's basically liquid, okay? It's just liquid filth. Dante even uses this imagery. Dante was into gross images as well. Dante, the famous Italian poet. Dante's Inferno. He's describing hell. I grabbed a picture of it here, this chapter. um, Describing, he said particularly, this is for the liars, okay? The liars are the ones that are in there just swimming in their own filth. And that's his description of self-salvation. So what Isaiah is setting up, we can move that slide now. We don't want to think about it anymore. (laughs) What Isaiah is setting up here is that joy is a cosmic war, and there are two sides. One side is those of us that wave the white flag and say, I am tired of this filth. Jesus, will you pull me out of this and clean me up? And then there's another side that's like, I can do this. I don't need you, God. Get out of my way, God. Let me swim. Let me do this. Let me save myself. Question is, which one are you? Which one do we want to be? Do we want to surrender and say, Jesus, save me. Pull me out of this miry pit. Put a new song in my mouth. That's what's described in Psalm 40. Or, Or do we want to be the one that just keeps swimming in the filth? Which one will we be? He says the end of it with finality. Verse 12, the high fortifications of his walls, he will bring down. He will lay low, cast to the ground, to the dust. That stronghold will not be there. That stronghold, that fortress will, will not last. Jesus is the only true stronghold. He's the one that we should run to. So again, will you, will you keep swimming or will you say, I'm tapping out. Jesus, I need you. Rescue me. Please pull me out of this pit. Joy is a cosmic war. And we have to beware of pride because pride will be crushed. The New Testament quotes this Old Testament concept multiple times that if we humble ourselves before God, he will lift us up. But if we lift ourselves up, he's going to humble us. Pride will be crushed. Joy is a cosmic war. One thing that I think is helpful as we try to apply this in our own life, this is just a thing to know, which I think is helpful, and I'll give you some steps to take based on this. A thing to know, in this cosmic war against evil in the world, the devil is not all-powerful. I was talking about this with a friend this week. Uh, He's doing a systematic theology study with some friends. And he's like, it just occurred to me. Like the devil is not all powerful and all knowing, but God is. God is sovereign. God is all knowing. God is all powerful, but the devil is not. And I think that's an important thing to remember. He is to be respected, right? Um, We shouldn't be cavalier about it. He's a roaring lion that wants to devour us. But we're also told in the New Testament that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. He's a bully that was ultimately defeated through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we're resisting now and taking ground now, knowing that the war is going to be completed when we see him again face to face. So, steps to take Ephesians 6 outlines what spiritual warfare, what this cosmic war looks like. And it gives three very important steps. One just gets one verse that's wield the sword of the spirit, which is described as the word of God. So study the Bible, learn the Bible, read the Bible, memorize the Bible, speak the Bible, and that is engaging in warfare. That's wielding a sword that pushes back evil in the world. We have this Bible reading plan, this little paper handouts in the back where you can get Uh, more deeply embedded in Bible habits of reading and studying and meditating on Scripture. That's an important part. What's interesting in Ephesians 6, though, when it talks about spiritual warfare, when it talks about the joy of this cosmic war, it only says that once, right? Wield this powerful sword. It says that once, but then it repeats these other two steps. Repeats again and again two steps. One is prayer, and the other is armoring ourselves, clothing ourselves in Jesus himself. It repeats those steps in Ephesians chapter six. It says, pray, 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 pray. Ask God for help, ask God for help, ask God for help, and he will help you. And it says, clothe yourselves in Christ, clothe yourselves in Christ. It says it like five different ways, the helmet, the breastplate, the belt. Armor yourself in the righteousness, the salvation, the peace, the grace that we have in Christ, in Christ alone. Put on Christ, put on Christ, put on Christ clothe yourself in him, run to him. He's your stronghold. Every day we get up and we clothe ourselves in him. He's our only help. This is uh, how we wage this cosmic war. And then finally, just as an aside, 1 Peter 3.15 describes this in this way. When we actually hope in Jesus and we rejoice in Jesus in the midst of suffering and persecution and difficulty, that's when people are gonna be like, hey, tell me about this Jesus. Like, why do you have this supernatural hope? And that's one more step in this cosmic war. Okay, we'll end here. Joy will come. Joy will come and joy is God-powered. Joy is wildly inclusive and joy is cosmic war. As he says in verse nine, it'll be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in our salvation. The New Testament clearly connects the dots that this salvation, this rejoicing, this Lord that we've waited for is Jesus Christ himself. You can know this kind of joy right now. Joy will come. Will it be fuller? Will it be bigger? Will it be uh, more complete? Yes. But you can know this joy now in the person of Jesus Christ. Trust him, he will bring you joy beginning today. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you are... Our ultimate source of joy. Thank you that you sent Jesus for us. Help us to rejoice in him. Uh, Help us to have an infectious joy that shares that joy with our family, with our neighbors, with our friends. We pray that this would be so uh, for your glory, for the joy of all peoples. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.